0: Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm back with the one and only Dr. Jillian Isaac for another Keyword episode. This is Keywords Part 9. Wow. And today, we're going to cover fentanyl and circle and non-circle systems, so kind of breathing circuits. Both uh, frequently tested items on exams and places you can pick up quite a few points. Before we start, I want to remind everyone that coming up in less than two months, we have our first ever ACRAC live episode on April 24th. If you are interested in coming, just shoot us an email, acrac at acrac.com. All right. That'll be a lot of fun. So let's turn to the topic at hand. And let me say, welcome back, Dr. Isaac.
1: Thank you. So we're going to start with fentanyl because it's, to me, more fun and interesting than (laughs) breathing systems. But so fentanyl, it is. Um, So if you look at the ABA content outline, this is actually in both the basic and advanced. So it covers both exams. And it's under pharmacology, and it just says opioids. So it doesn't really parse out fentanyl, fentanyl, but I know that they test all of those. And then for all the opioids, they want you to know what they want you to know for all of pharmacology. So, pharmacokinetics, pharmacokinetics pharmacodynamics, protein binding pharmacokinetics of neuraxial drug administration, termination of action, drug interactions tolerance, and the big new one is abuse. I think we're seeing more and more questions about abuse lately. So if you actually look in open anesthesia, you can go back and see how often these topics are tested. So the ones that I found are transdermal fentanyl, like the fentanyl patch was tested in 2009 and 2012. And then drug abuse is the new one. We're seeing it more and more. So 2009, 2010, 2014, 2017. So I wouldn't be surprised if that comes up again. Context-sensitive half-time was new. was in 2019. Noraxial fentanyl is a big one, 2008, 2010, 2015, and then overdose and reversal, 2009, and then again in 2019. And then you're always going to get effects on organ systems and side effects, all the drugs, like was the effect on the respiratory system, on the CNS, on um, the, the, the heart. So they're going to ask about those types of things, including side effects like parietas, nausea, and vomiting. So that's pretty much every year, 09, 2012, 2015, 2016, 2017, 2019, like guaranteed test question. So – mechanism of action. Do you remember how fentanyl works? New
0: opioid receptors. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So
1: yeah, it uh, acts at a cellul- cellular level by activating opioid receptors and they're actually distributed throughout the CNS. So you do get them in the nuclei of tractus solitarius, which is in the periaqueductal gray area, in the cerebral cortex of thalamus and then the one we always think about is in the substantia gelatinosa of the uh, spinal column and the only reason why I'm bringing this up is I've heard that they're asking these things, like exactly where are they? So it's not enough to know mu receptors. They actually want you to know that it's in the substantia gelatinosa. And then the other interesting thing, and I, for legal reasons, I don't solicit, I don't want to know what's on the ITE, but I do hear residents talk about it. And I think this year that they, they were asking about actually how it works and what ion goes out and what ion goes in which is crazy but it did I think got get that detailed so when they bind to the mu receptors you get a closure that closes the voltage sensitive calcium channels and you get a potassium efflux which leads to hyperpolarization and reduced cyclic A-M-P production. So overall, the effect is a reduction in neuronal cell excitability, and that in turn results in reduced transmission. And I normally don't get into this level of detail, but this is like how detailed they're actually asking this stuff now, which is crazy. But So the other key thing to know is that fentanyl has a high lipid solubility, so it crosses the blood blood-brain barrier really easily and rapidly. And it has a rapid redistribution phase, which is why its effects are really short-lived. With that said, if you give a lot or you have prolonged administration, the context-sensitive half-life changes. So you pretty much have saturated all your receptors and then you get this um, I think of it as a reservoir, like in the plasma hanging out in like fatty tissues, and it takes a long time to recover from that. So it has a slow elimination from the body. It's about a three and a half hour half-life when you have had a lot of fentanyl and it's then predominantly metabolized by the liver and it's norfentanyl is the metabolite. And it's not, act- it's not active. And there are a lot of opioids who actually have active metabolites, but not fentanyl. So these are the type of questions that you're going to see in terms of, um, Mechanism of action, pharmacodynamics, and pharmacokinetics.
0: And sorry, before you say that, yeah, Jillian, I'll just say that you know the, you mentioned the context-sensitive halftime, and I think just in case folks don't know that, that, what that's talking about is that if you have an infusion of a medication, in this case, let's talk about fentanyl, right. that as that infusion goes on for longer and longer, you're building up more, as you said, more fentanyl in, for example, the, the rest of the body throughout the fatty tissues, et cetera, and then when you turn off the infusion, it will take a lot longer for the plasma concentration to decrease by half than it would have if you hadn't been running the infusion for that long. So it may, after a while, be, like you said, three and a half hours. But if you continue the infusion, it'll be even longer because that context-sensitive halftime just keeps going up. Right. So after a few hours, you're going to have one halftime. But after a day, it'll be a, a longer halftime. After two days, even longer. And so you're continuing to build up. And your half-time, your half-life continues to go up so unlike a bolus dose which you give a bolus you've got a half-life it's over in a certain amount of time or it's halved in a certain amount of time with an infusion, that changes depending on the length of the infusion.
1: Right. And fentanyl is one of the worst offenders in that it just really goes up quite quickly. So if you give a lot, especially up front, the amount of time it takes your liver to metabolize goes up and up. Um, and then the exception to that in opioids is remifentanil. That's one that stays very steady, uh, which is why I really like remifentanil. So these are the type of questions you're going to see on the test. So the most important reason for the more rapid onset and shorter duration of action of fentanyl with single dose compared with morphine is the difference in A, volume of distribution, B, hepatic clearance, C, protein binding, D, lipid solubility.
0: Right. So as you said, lipid solubility is going to be what causes that initial uh, decrease, rapid onset, but also rapid offset of action.
1: Because it's lipophilic, so it crosses the blood-brain barrier very easily Mm -hmm. and have its action, and then it will be washed away. Whereas morphine is actually quite hydrophilic, so it takes a lot longer, and that's why it's a lot of delayed onset compared to fentanyl. All right. So the next question, the short clinical duration of action of a single dose of fentanyl is a result of its A, small volume of distribution, B, large volume of distribution, C, low lipid solubility, D, rapid redistribution, E, short elimination half-life.
0: And there is kind of asking a similar question because of its high lipid solubility, not low lipid solubility, but because of its high lipid solubility, it will rapidly redistribute and that will cause a rapid... Uh, offset of action. Right.
1: And I didn't love this next question, but I think it's a good learning point. So the question is the decreased duration of action of an intravenous dose of fentanyl compared with an intravenous dose of morphine is best explained by A, greater lipid solubility, B, increased hepatic metabolism, C, less protein binding, D, shorter elimination half-life, and E, smaller volume of distribution. So I want to pick Rapid redistribution and it's not there. But again, they're trying to compare fentanyl versus morphine. And the degree the decreased duration of action is yes, it's a redistribution, but it goes back across the blood brain barrier. And I think that's why they're what they're trying to get at with this question.
0: So the answer being greater lipid solubility. Right. Yeah. Which I think what they're I mean, what we see, the pattern here, is that they're kind of interchangeably using rapid redistribution with greater lipid solubility because it's Is because of the lipid solubility that it's able to redistribute throughout the uh, lipid-rich tissues of the body. Right,
1: to a point. And then you've saturated your body, and then you keep going back and forth between body, brain, body, brain until you eliminate it with the liver. All right, so the next one, a 70-kilogram 20-year-old athlete receives nitrous oxide and oxygen thiopental and 1.25 milligrams, which is 25 milliliters of fentanyl during a knee reconstruction procedure lasting three hours. That's a boatload of fentanyl. Postoperatively, he does not awaken or resume spontaneous breathing for three hours. The most likely explanation for the prolonged effect of fentanyl is A, dose dependent elimination half life, B, genetically slow biotransformation, C, large volume of distribution, D, presence of an active metabolite and high concentration, E, time required for hepatic elimination.
0: Yeah, and so I think just with that large of a dose, it's going to take time for hepatic elimination. Um,
1: right, and that's pretty much asking, is, do you know how fentanyl is actually metabolized and not how does the effect go away? And I think the confusing one is, A, dose-dependent elimination half-life, which I looked it up, it's not really a thing. I think they're trying to trick you up with the context-sensitive half-life. Right. Yeah, so I think that was actually a really good distractor answer.
0: Right, and the other thing to remember is that half-life, just means the amount of time it takes for the plasma concentration to decrease by half. If you give an enormous dose, it will still decrease by half in a certain amount of time, but you You still still have have a huge dose. It's going to take several half lives before you get to a dose, you can start breathing and waking up.
1: So those questions are really common about pharmacodynamic, pharmacokinetic, and metabolism of fentanyl. So the next uh, key point is actually about norexial fentanyl. So norexial fentanyl, it provides analgesia Analgesia primarily through a spinal site of action. So alone, if you just were doing fentanyl in an epidural, you can actually get moderate analgesia in early labor, and that's what is known as a walking epidural. Which, when I was in residency 15 years ago, it was like super trendy. Like, you know, everyone on the upper east side wanted their walking epidural. But the truth is, it's not awesome. Like, you can only get like a peak amount. You can get much better. You can actually get complete analgesia, but you need massive amounts to the point where you start getting huge side effects like uh, puritis, nausea, vomiting, maternal sedation. And even maybe like fetal compromise. So you can't really get as good of a walking epidural, a narcotic-only epidural, as you would with local anesthetics. Um, And it's also not going to be good for your second stage. It's fine for the first stage, but not great for the second stage. But by using an epidural opioid, you can actually use more dilute local anesthetic, which has value, and it also um, prolongs the duration of analgesia and improves the quality of analgesia. So there are a lot of benefits, and that's why we do it in OB. We run fentanyl alongside of that. So these are the type of questions you're going to see about neuraxial fentanyl, and they ask a lot more than I expected. But which of the following statements concerning the use of epidural opioids during labor is true? A, fentanyl decreases the concentration of epidural bupivacaine required for satisfactory analgesia. B, fentanyl is an effective analgesic for the second stage of labor. C, sufentanyl is an unsatisfactory analgesic for labor. D, the addition of epinephrine to morphine prolongs the duration of analgesia. And then E, the duration of analgesia with fentanyl is 6 to 10 hours.
0: Yeah, so I think a lot of this you just covered in your little summary, but I would say clearly fentanyl decreases the concentration you need of right. a local anesthetic right. like bupivacaine. Right. Um, and interestingly, that last choice there, um, can you read that one more time? The
1: duration of analgesia with fentanyl is 6 to 10 hours.
0: Um, actually, the one before that.
1: Uh, the addition of epinephrine to morphine prolongs the duration of analgesia. Right, so
0: they're trying to, they're getting at what about the addition of epinephrine to local anesthetic? Right, right. They're right, trying to make right. you think yeah. of that because yeah. we often do that.
1: So what happens when you give a narcotic an opioid in the epidural space, it, again, crosses the dura and binds the mu receptors directly, but now it's in the CSF, and ultimately it will build up and work its way up a little bit, and then it just gets washed out with the CSF. So it's not the same way it gets metabolized, well, not metabolized, but the same way it gets cleared as when you have local anesthetic, which gets into the vasculature and then goes. Yeah. Okay, so here's another question. Which of the following statements concerning the use of epidural opioids during labor is true? Oh, I think I just asked this one. Sorry. <laughs> Next one. Compare with morphine, a single epidural administration of fentanyl is associated with A, delayed onset of analgesia, B, increased incidence of paritis, C, increased incidence of respiratory depression, D, longer duration of action, E, more restrictive segmental spread.
0: Yeah, and I think the answer there is the uh, more restricted segmental spread because fentanyl because it's so lipophilic will cross out of the epidural space and so you won't get as much spread with morphine it won't cross as easily and so it'll stay in the epidural space and be carried by the currents of csf and cover more distance right
1: yeah and that's why you worry about the delayed respiratory depression more with morphine because fentanyl does not have that same degree of rostral spread as morphine does So the next key point is actually transdermal fentanyl. The key point for transdermal fentanyl is we're using a lot less now, but it's mostly for chronic cancer pain. And the patch actually takes 24 to 72 hours to work because you need to build up a reservoir and the stratum corneum. And that is a word I haven't heard since medical school. (laughs) And then significant amounts of fentanyl continue to be absorbed from the skin for more than 24 hours after the patch is removed. So you put the patch on, it takes a long time to get kind of under the skin to that bottom layer of skin, and then you have a reservoir. So once the patch goes off, that reservoir sticks around and they want you to know that. So this is the type of question that you'll see. Which of the following is associated with the application of a transdermal fentanyl patch? A, achievement of a peak plasma level within one hour. B, continued uptake after patch removal. C, dose-independent plasma clearance. D, tachyphylaxis when used for cancer pain. E, naloxone-resistant toxicity.
0: And as you said, you'll still get that continued spread even after patch removal.
1: Right. And I don't see them as much anymore as I used to. I feel like I had a lot more patients who would come in with, like, fentanyl patches, and I don't see them as much as I used to. Yeah, we still see them in in the ICU if people
0: come in. Yeah, yeah. But it's a a different population.
1: Yeah. we used to use fentanyl lollipops all the time at Columbia, mm. and I've never even seen or heard of it here. No. Do you know talking it's like fentanyl on a stick, and you're like really stuck on but it. I yeah. Seen them. Yeah. yeah. We would use it for like really anxious patients in the pre-op area. They would sit there and suck on their fentanyl lollipop. Mm. All right. So the next uh, key point is on organ effects and side effects. So, side effects include muscle rigidity, bradycardia, respiratory depression, increased common bile duct pressure, nausea, vomiting, and pruritus. I know everyone talks about this potential muscle rigidity on induction with fentanyl. And I don't think I've actually ever seen it.
0: I've seen it not with fentanyl, but with remy fentanyl. Yeah,
1: Yeah. but I haven't seen it with fentanyl. And I actually looked embarrassed. And the studies they did, they said as many as 50% of patients experienced it. But the amount of fentanyl they got was ridiculous. I think Mm -hmm. it was like 1.5 milligram over 10 minutes. So I think in the higher doses, it's probably more likely than when we're using 100 mics, 250 mics in the operating room. Yeah um so here we go fentanyl induced bradycardia is a independent of the speed of injection b independent of dose c caused by direct inhibition of adrenal catecholamine release d caused by vagal stimulation e caused by direct sa node depression
0: that's interesting um probably vagal stimulation is what you're getting with the fentanyl. I didn't
1: know this. It's honestly one of those things that when I'm looking at questions, I was like, oh, interesting. I don't, yeah. think I, I don't think I knew that. But it is. And then the other question that goes along with that is pancuronium blocks the bradycardic effect of fentanyl by a direct effect on A, beta adrenergic receptors, B, cardiac muscarinic receptors, C, carotid baroreceptors, D, central vagal nuclei, E, sympathetic ganglia.
0: And so, I mean, I think this is an independent offend, though, right? This is asking how does pancaronium cause potentially tachycardia, right. and so uh, it's going to be the muscarinic
1: uh, Right. Receptor. It has a direct effect on cardiac muscarinic receptors. Yeah. Exactly. All right. So a 66-year-old man with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease who underwent colectomy 12 hours ago has been receiving an epidural infusion of fentanyl at a rate of 100 micrograms per hour. Which of the following is least likely to develop? A, hypotension. B, nausea. C, paritis, D, respiratory depression. E, urinary retention.
0: So uh, it's in fentanyl-only epidural.
1: It doesn't say if it's fentanyl-only, but he's getting 100 micrograms an hour of fentanyl through the epidural. It uh, It doesn't say bupivacaine, so I'm assuming it is fentanyl-only through the epidural.
0: Yeah. So a fentanyl-only epidural is unlikely to cause hypotension, right. and that's probably right. what it is, though. Yeah. You can get those other side effects like puritis and Right, and
1: it's the thing least likely to develop. So nausea, puritis, respiratory depression, and urinary retention are the more common side effects. Hypotension is less common, especially if it's just um, narcotic, and that's why in cardiac they used to do that cardiac induction, which right. was just a lot of fentanyl, and it has a lot of hemodynamic stability, which is why – it's kind of a go-to when you want no changes in blood pressure. Right. Yeah. So intrabiliary pressure will be increased to the greatest extent by intravenous administration of A, atropine, B, glucagon, C, naloxone, D, fentanyl, and E, butorphanol.
0: So, you know, uh, what, which of these is not like the other? Uh, right. Fentanyl is probably going to be the answer to that. We know that it can do that.
1: Right. And all of them can, but fentanyl is actually one of the worst offenders. That's what that's what it said. So, uh, respiratory depression is least after the induction dose of which of the following drugs? A. Etomidate, B. Ketamine, C. Fentanyl, and D. Propofol.
0: Uh, read them one more time.
1: Respiratory depression is least after which of the following drugs? Induction yeah. doses: Etomidate, Ketamine, Fentanyl, Propofol.
0: Yeah, so definitely Ketamine. Ketamine yeah, is ketamine. is one of the reasons right. we would use it is that yeah. it really patients will continue breathing yeah. you can get some apnea at least it's uh, been described with high once, dose
1: once in 10 years i gave it an ob to a patient in a section who needed it and that she was teeny tiny and only gave 30 30 milligrams but she went apnea oh, wow. and i was like yeah, i would <laughs> never seen it before it's
0: super uncommon yeah, yeah. is a very safe medication yeah, to use for right. people who you want to keep breathing
1: and uh, so i put that in there because fentanyl is very common listed when you're doing these type of like pharmacological questions. It's a good distractor answer. They throw it in all the time. And here's another example of that. Which of the following drugs increases cerebral blood flow while decreasing cerebral metabolic rate? Atomidate, fentanyl, isoflurane, lidocaine, midazolam. Uh,
0: So isoflurane should fit that bill there.
1: And I did look up fentanyl and what effect it has on cerebral blood flow. And from what I saw, it actually increases ICP and increases cerebral blood flow, but it's not a huge amount and that may not be significant and the studies were all done in people with head injuries so who really knows but,
0: yeah. yeah i mean i think what you want to know is that the inhaled anesthetics like isoflurane will have that profile
1: right So the next one is reversal. The key point here is that naloxone can reverse opioids. I think with the opioid crisis, we're all fairly familiar with naloxone. But 55 kilogram, 70 year old woman with mild chronic renal failure is unresponsive 20 hours after an uneventful coronary artery bypass grafting procedure. Anesthetic drugs include fentanyl 3,000 micrograms, so three grams, diazepam 35 milligrams, and pancuronium 20 milligrams. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? And I like this question. Because it's many things. It's, you have to know, like, ha, like, half-lives, contact-sensitive half-lives. But you also have to know, like, she's got renal failure and does that play into the metabolism of things. So the qu- answers are A, administration of edrophonium, B, administration of flumazenil, C, administration of naloxone, D, CT scan of the head, and E, measurement of core body temperature.
0: Yeah, so I think it's is tricky. She got a huge dose of fentanyl and, and she got a huge dose of right, diazepam, of right. benzodiazepines. So you're talking about a reversal agent, naloxone to reverse right. opioids, or flumazanil to to uh, reverse benzodiazepines. You know, it seems like 35 milligrams of um, diazepam is is truly enormous, um, and and 20 hours later, that three grams of fentanyl, though a lot, may be playing right. less of a role. So
1: 20 hours later, it should be out uh, of your system and the liver is metabolizing it. So you're, she has a healthy liver and it, uh, there is renal involvement in diazepam metabolism. So I think that was also a clue as to why they wanted you to pick flumazenil. Yeah. So it was a tricky question, but a good one. And the last one is abuse, which is, um, you see these questions, like I said, more and more now. Uh, and I wrote these because they're so new that there aren't in the old release mm-hmm. that I could find and not in any like, question books that I know about. Um, so I hope I did okay. (laughs) So according to the ASA Task Force on Chemical Dependence, which of the following is not a characteristic of addicted anesthesiologists? A, 50% are younger than 35 years old. B, residents are overrepresented. C, 76 to 90% abuse opioids as their drug of choice. D, 65% are not associated with academic departments.
0: Oh, I, I don't know the answer to that.
1: So it's actually D. So 65% are associated with academic departments, and I don't really know why. It didn't go into it. It just has this list of, like, why. My best guess, so my husband's a private practice anesthesiologist. I think people in academic departments are, tend to really put a lot of pressure on themselves, a little bit more high-achieving. And I, not that sounds terrible, but we put pressure on ourselves to, like, do well and, and produce and write papers and research and be great clinicians and be great Fathers and mothers. So I, that's my guess is why it was like more academic people fall into it than not. I don't know. Yeah. Or maybe it's easy to slip it away from a trainee or something. Yeah, like, I don't know. <laughs> go undercover. But so, yeah, so 50% are younger than 35, and residents are overrepresented. 76 to 90% abuse opioids. So, propofol and SIBofluorine, it can happen, but it, it much more rare. Um, other characteristics many are members of AOA. So, again, they're kind of like high functioning, high achieving group of people. 30 to 50% are poly drug abusers. So, usually it's alcohol on top of the um, narcotic. And then 33% have a family history of addictive disease. So, those are the characteristics, if they're asking, of someone who is um, more likely to have a chemical dependence. So which of the following is the most commonly abused narcotic by anesthesiologists? A, fentanyl, B, sufentanyl, C, Meperidine. D, morphine, E, oral drugs.
0: I'm going to go with fentanyl there.
1: Yeah, it is. And I actually put them in order. So fentanyl is the most abused, but sufentanyl is actually the second, mm. which is very interesting, followed by myperidine and morphine and then PO pills.
0: All right. Well, hopefully uh, that is not something people are going to see regularly. But as you said, it does appear on exams. I think they want us all to know, especially in the face of the opioid crisis, we'll probably see this happening more and more coming up on exams. So um, know that stuff. All right. Shall we move to topic number two?
1: Yeah. Okay. So the topic number two is circle systems and non-circle systems. And if you look in the ABA content outline, this is under basic topics in anesthesiology, basic sciences. It's under monitoring and anesthesia delivery devices, circle systems, and non-circle systems. So I just want to be honest why I picked this today, because this was a topic when I was studying that just seemed so overwhelming and so unattainable that I was like, I am not, I'm not even going to get this point right. Like, I'm just going to give it up right now. I'm not going to try and study it. it takes too many brain cells, not... Not my jam, right? (laughs) So I never really learned it as a resident. And then looking back at it as an attending, I realized it's actually much more simple than I really ever made it out to be. So I really hope that I can give you like three or four pointers that will help you get 90% of these questions correct. And you got to think that a lot of people get these wrong. So if you can get this right, it puts you a little bit ahead, a little bit more of an advantage on the test. That's great. Yeah. So what they're testing, the Mapleson D is probably the most – commonly tested of the Maplesons. It was in 2010 and then 2011. Circle systems, especially like uh, CO2 rebreathing 2016. Uh, and then the work of breathing that was tested in 2010, 2012, 2014. And then the comparison of like Maplesons to circle systems that was in 2011. Okay. So Mapleson circuits are actually really simple. And before what we know as like the traditional bag mask valve, the Mapleson C is what was used like for CPR. Okay. So I always think C, CPR. I mean, you They're simple in that it's like a mask, corrugated tubing, an ambu bag, and then you have fresh gas flow and a pop-off valve. And that's all they are, all of them. So you have the mask, the bag, the fresh gas flow, and then the the tubing. So Mapleson circuits don't have CO2 scrubbers, so they rely on high fresh gas flows to wash away CO2. And that's a really important thing to remember because in a circle system, you can get rid of the CO2. You can't in these Maplesons. So there's minimal rebreathing, and then you're going to lose heat and moisture because you have minimal rebreathing. Breathing. So, there are a lot of disadvantages to maples and circuits, and that's why we don't use them anymore. But they rely on high fresh gas flows, so you're going to waste gas. You're going to contaminate the OR environment, so you're not going to be below below that two parts per million that OSHA requires. You cannot retain heat and moisture in the airway, and so you're going to have drying and damaging of the airway as a result. So, there are some advantages. They are easy to use, they are, in theory, less complex, and there's less work of breathing. I think because we don't routinely use them, that to us they seem very more complex, and but they're actually very simple to use. Um, they are very similar to, like, a, like an Ambu bag, what we use, like, on a daily basis. Like, the Maple Sea is very similar to that. It's just a little different in kind of where the fresh gas flow is coming in and out. So that's really all there is to it. I think that they're kind of the go-between from when we first started using ether and dropping you know little drops on a mask. Before we got the circle system, they're kind of the in-between. So it's one of those things that's more historical, but they still ask about, so they're good to know about. So... Uh, that leads us to a circle system, which has a lot of advantages to it. So in in the circle system, you recycle your gas that is expired from the patient. So you reduce the requirement of fresh gas flow, and you're going to decrease waste of gases. So it actually is more efficient and more cost effective. It saves you money. Uh, You have a scavenging system, so it's going to prevent OR contamination, and you're going to retain heat and moisture. So there are disadvantages to a circle system. They are more complex. The one-way valves can get stuck. The one-way valves can increase resistance to breathing. And your lower fresh, Gas flow rate. You can have it. Can take longer for changes made to the anesthetic to mixture to occur. Although you can get around that by increasing Turning your fresh gas, the gas flow, flow. flow. But yeah. Um, and then in theory, you read this theoretically. If you have a low flow rate and Seba you can get compound A. I don't know how in how much in reality that happens. But right. our machines have a little reminder if you're using Seba to like turn your flow up a little bit. So.
0: Right. I, it's interesting. Yeah. I've gotten some international listeners have written to me to say when this has come up before to say you know is that really still being taught in the U.S. because evidently... What, the Maplesons? No, the the fact that for SIBO you need high flows because internationally, evidently, this has just been totally debunked. They don't pay attention to that anymore. Well,
1: that's why I say it's more theoretical. You know it's something you read in textbooks, but I don't think it's really a reality. Okay, so this is what you need to know about Mapleson circuits, and if you can remember these few rules, you will be fine on the test. So you have A through F. A requires the least amount of fresh gas flow, and it increases through F. So A needs least, B needs a little more, C, it goes A through F. So... Sometimes they'll ask like Mapleson A versus Mapleson D. So the Mapleson A needs less than the Mapleson D. And so this is how I remember it. so I remember Mapleson A is for an alive patient, so it's really good for spontaneously breathing. So someone who is awake and breathing, Mapleson A alive and awake. B, I say it's boring because it's obsolete and it's absolutely never used anymore. C was traditionally used for CPR. we've gotten away from it with AMU bags and the bag mass valve, but it's a kind of older CPR equipment D I, I say this to remember it, but it's for a dead patient because you need to mechanically ventilate someone who's dead. so D is the mechanically ventilate and those are the two they really ask about so A and D. So if you can remember A alive, D dead, A is spontaneously breathing, D is mechanically ventilate. It's also known as the Bain circuit. B is in boy Bain. So sometimes they won't say Mapleson D, they'll just say Bain. So you need to put those together in your head. And then I say E is like ET because it's from outer space because there's no bag on it. It's like a T piece in a way. Uh Um, But they don't ask questions about it ever. And then F, I say baby safe is the Jackson Reese. So the F is the baby safe. So if you can just remember that lie B boring, obsolete, C, CPR, D is a dead patient. So you need to mechanically ventilate EET. There's no bag on it. F is baby safe. Those are really what they ask.
0: Yeah, I agree with you that the questions that you'll see most often are about what's best for spontaneous ventilation, which, as you said, is the A, and what's best for mechanical or non-spontaneous ventilation, which is the D. Uh, The mnemonic that I was, remember, learning as a medical student or resident, perhaps, is for spontaneous ventilation, the order is all dogs can bite. So A is the best for spontaneous ventilation, then D, then C, then B, all dogs can bite, A, D, C B and for mechanical ventilation, dog bites can ache. so D then B then C then a. That's
1: a good amount. Yeah. But usually they ask about like what's the best. So these are the type of questions you're going to see about uh, mapleons and circle systems and this should cover the vast majority of questions that you're going to see. Yeah. So which mapleson breathing which mapleson breathing system permits the least amount of fresh gas inflow to prevent rebreathing during spontaneous ventilation?
0: Right. So we talked about this. During spontaneous ventilation, the, the most efficient, the least gas flow is A.
1: Right. In a 5-kilogram child, the end-tidal carbon dioxide tension is 35 millimeters of mercury during spontaneous ventilation through a Mapleson D system. Which single change is most likely to increase this value? A, decreasing the fresh gas flow. B, increasing respiratory minute volume. C, opening the pressure release valve. D, removing the reservoir bag. E, substituting larger bore tubing.
0: Yeah, so I think um, if you decrease the fresh gas flow rate, like you said, the thing with these circuits is there is no uh, CO2 absorbent. And so if you decrease fresh gas flow, you're going to increase the rebreathing of CO2 and therefore the PCO2. Right.
1: And then if you increase the fresh gas flow, you would... I think you just said that. You would decrease the CO2. Okay. So this is a circle system question. Which of the following decreases dead space in an anesthetic circle system? A, larger surface area of the expiratory unit directional valve. B, placing a septum in the Y piece. C, shorter expiratory limb tubing. D, smaller carbon dioxide absorber. E, smaller reservoir bag.
0: Yeah, so this comes up a lot in various forms of questions, so I'm glad you asked this. It is, the key to to answering this is knowing that the only dead space in a circle system is what is, beyond the Y piece. And so as soon as you get to the Y piece, you now don't have dead space anymore because you're dividing and your expiratory flow is going one way and your inspiratory is coming the other way. So that's not dead space anymore. So the answer choice there that said putting something between the Y piece and the patient is what's going to add dead space. Right.
1: Uh, Now back to Maplesons. During anesthesia using the Bain circuit, which is a Mapleson D. A, PaCO2 is independent of minute volume if fresh gas flow is greater than 17 milliliters per kilogram. B, PaCO2 is independent of fresh gas flow if minute volume is greater than 100 milliliters per kilogram. C, PaCO2 may be normal in the presence of rebreathing. D, carbon dioxide removal is more efficient during spontaneous ventilation than during controlled ventilation. E, less body heat is lost than with a circle system.
0: So I, that's a confusing question for me. I'm not sure what the answer is. Um, what is the, What did the uh, source say?
1: So they said C, that PACO2 may be normal in the presence of rebreathing, which I don't really understand. I try to look it up, try to find a good answer. Um, there are limited questions in the set, so I yeah. wanted to put it out there anyway. But that's what they're saying is that even in – and my guess is that it may if you have high enough fresh gas flow, even if you have some rebreathing, that it would just – wash it away that's my best guess
0: yeah i don't know if anyone out there gets this let let us us know know. thank you um i would say that's a a difficult question because you if you increase your fresh gas flow enough you will prevent rebreathing right um so to say that despite rebreathing your co2 could still be normal i'm not quite sure unless unless what you're saying which is that it could be a small amount i'm not sure
1: Okay. So, there's another Bain circuit question. So, they like the Mapleson D. So, which of the following statements concerning use of a Bain circuit is true? A, fresh gas flow can be as low as the patient's minute ventilation. B, heat conservation is better than with a circle system. C, lower flows can be used with controlled ventilation than with spontaneous ventilation. D, lower fresh gas flows can be used than with the Jackson-Ree system. E, the concentration of inspired vapors can be changed rapidly.
0: Yeah, so that's one of the nice things, you know, if you're using higher flow, which you have to with these systems, then you can change quickly. Whereas, like you pointed out before, a circle system... You can run high flows and then change your anesthetic quickly, but we tend to run lower flows and therefore it takes longer to change the concentration of anesthetic. Right.
1: So this is a circle system question now. It is All of the following would result in less trace gas pollution of the ora atmosphere except A, use of a high gas flow in a circular system, B, tight mass seal during mask induction. C, use of a scavenging system, and D, allow patient to breathe 100% O2 as long as possible before extubation.
0: All right. So I think this is a little bit tricky. Uh, I think what they're probably going for is using a high flow um, uh, in the circle system will not make much of a difference or will actually will not reduce it. It will increase it. Because if something were to become disconnected, so you're using high flows. If your circuit comes becomes disconnected and you're now exposed to the atmosphere yeah. in the operating room, you'll be pumping out a lot of gas. Right. And those other ones. So if you get a really good mask seal, obviously that will decrease it. If you um,
1: the scavenging system
0: use the scavenger system, that will obviously decrease it. And if you allow uh, the patient to essentially breathe off a lot of their SIVO or ISO, whatever you're using, before extubation by using just 100% oxygen and not using any additional anesthetic gas, then that will be absorbed by, uh, that will be scavenged out of the room. And when they then breathe out into the room, they'll just be breathing oxygen and not uh, SIBO.
1: Right. And that's exactly what they said. Like the answer explanation said that if you did get a leak, which is actually not infrequent, that you, you disconnect to put the nose piece on or right. the expiratory limb goes to the floor, something like that. It's not uncommon in the OR. And that actually is what contributes of all those four things, the most to OR pollution. Yeah. So it wasn't an easy question. I don't think it was worded really well, but the idea, the concept is good. Okay. So during general anesthesia administered through a circle system, the soda lime absorbent is exhausted. No fresh soda lime is available for use. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step to prevent hypercapnia in this patient? A, decreasing the dead space of the circle system. B, discontinuing nitrous oxide. C, increasing the fresh gas flow. D, increasing tidal volume. E, switching to spontaneous ventilation.
0: So it- And the nice thing is all you have to do is increase fresh gas flow and it will take care of it.
1: So it's kind of like the same idea as with the Maplesons is they will wash it away. And that's actually just a good point to know because – or maybe uh, your soda lime absorbent is exhausted and the tech can't get to you quickly. That's one thing that you can do to help get the CO2 levels down. Okay. During use of the ventilator on an anesthesia machine, positive pressure is noted on the airway pressure gauge during exhalation. Positive end-expiratory pressure has not been purposefully added to the breathing circuit. Which of the following is the most likely cause? A closure of the pop-up valve in the circle system. B excessive tidal volume settings on the ventilator. C obstruction of the pressure relief valve on the scavenging system. D overinflation of the endotracheal tube balloon. E tension pneumothorax.
0: Yeah. So this is one of the I can picture that scavenging system right some yeah yeah, some of them actually have that balloon that you can see and if that valve is too tight and that balloon fills up then you're creating that back pressure
1: right and th- that just speaks to that the circle system is more complex and things can go wrong and that's the one downside but they have so many more upsides why we use them now um, so just the last few questions and these are mapleson questions of the mapleson circuits which one is best for spontaneous spontaneous ventilation a b c d e
0: that's always said, yeah. all dogs can bite, right. so A.
1: And which one is the best for controlled ventilation?
0: And then D, dog bites can ache.
1: And which one is the Jackson-Reese system?
0: And that's the uh, F.
1: And the Bain system is D. Yeah. So if you can learn those key pieces of information, you'll get 95% of those questions correctly.
0: Awesome. That's yeah. great. Thanks so much, Jillian. Thank that's you. super helpful. Let's turn to the part of our show where we make random recommendations. Do you have something you'd like to recommend to the audience?
1: All right. So I have a book recommendation. Uh, It's by Trevor Noah. I think he he hosts a show, the late show yeah, or the night took show. took over I, from, uh, okay. <laughs> from
0: um, John Stewart. Yeah.
1: I've never actually seen the show, but I don't know how I picked up the book, but it's called, uh, born a crime. And he is very unique in that he was born during apartheid in South Africa to a black mom and a white Swiss German father, hmm. which was actually illegal at the time. And he goes into a lot about apartheid and what it was like, like being born a crime, like being born like illegally and having, uh, he, didn't fit in with the black kids because he wasn't black but he didn't fit with the white kids because he wasn't white and it's it's funny it's well written it's engaging but it's also fascinating the way he breaks down apartheid and how it was in south africa at the time
0: awesome so that's, that's great a great book. recommendation and
1: uh i actually have been listening to it on audible and he narrated himself and it's a great listen if you prefer audible books
0: love love aud- no, Audible. me too books. Yeah. it's my
1: drive it's what i do yeah
0: totally and it's great when the author reads them you get a little yeah more yeah that,
1: well, there's a, he has some African like Africa Africans and all the dialects in there, and it's nice to hear him actually say it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, great. My recommendation is there's I stumbled upon this uh, farm called Circle C Farm. It's actually based the farm itself is located in Florida, but they have a really strong internet presence, and it's a great farm. They do all their um, they raise all their animals uh, organically. They are all pastured. They spend their time outside. They are all grass-fed. And you can order meat from them. Uh, and what they do is they freeze it, they pack it in dry ice, and they send it. And this is uh, great for two reasons. One, the meat is very good. And two, the dry ice, if you have kids, is a ton of fun. And so my kids had never seen this before. I, I remember actually growing up. My mother, who when I was you know growing up, when between the time I was like 5 and eight, uh, five and nine, she was in medical school and she would bring home dry ice from experiments they were doing in lab and uh, we'd get to play with it. And so my kids had never seen this, but I I got to show them with this dry ice. So, you know, you put a little bit of dry ice in a bowl, pour some water on it and it it just steams all over the place. um, And they can play with the steam. We dropped it in a bottle of water, screwed the top on and it turned it into carbonated water. So it's a lot of fun.
1: uh, We use it My family always makes root beer. So you can use it to make root beer, homemade root beer. It's really good. But I will put – the chemist in me can't stop from making this precaution. Three people just died recently from dropping a bunch of dry ice into like a small sauna because it does create a lot of CO2. And the CO2 – they – it suffocated them. So yeah. you got to be careful. Like, you need to be in a well ventilated open area. Don't go into like a bathroom or anything because the CO2 will suffocate you very quickly.
0: Yeah, it's a great, great point. We were doing <laughs> this in a, in a wide open area. I Can't help myself. <laughs> uh, yeah, small amounts of uh, CO2 in a wide open area. Um, all right, uh, that is it. And that's Circle C, as in the letter C, farm um, as well. And we'll put a link to their website and as well as to Jillian's book uh, in the show notes. Thanks for coming back on the show, Jillian. You're welcome. All right. That was great. As always, Jillian with the keywords, bringing lots of great knowledge. If you have comments, head on over to the website, acrac.com. Leave comments so that everyone can learn from what you have to say as well. Every once in a while, someone catches something that we said that was wrong, and that's great, kind of ongoing peer review. So let us know. We can put a correction in the show notes Uh, if you catch something we said that you disagree with. You can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Jay Walpaw and the podcast is at ACRAC Podcast. Of course, we also have a Facebook group you can join, the ACRAC Facebook group. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com/acrac that's p a t r A-C-C-R-A-C where you can become a patron of the show, even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make an individual donation anytime if you just want to make one by going to uh, paypal.me/acrac Huge thanks, as always, to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. We really appreciate it. Big thanks to Kimia Cash-Cooley, our intern, to Dr. Brian Park and April Liu, who are doing a great job with the outlines for some of the episodes, and to Dr. Dennis Quo, who creates the original ACRAC music that you hear at the top and bottom of every episode. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Jillian Isaac, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas?